0: we thank you for your gift of eternal life through a chain of messianic mothers. Eve sinned. Eve, with the passivity of her husband, brought sin into the human condition so that we all must die. And yet through Eve, you brought life, and life abundantly, and life eternal through the son of Eve, the Son of Mary, Jesus, your Son, the Christ. So on this Mother's Day, I pray that you would comfort all of us, no matter what road we are walking today, comfort all of us with this great gift of motherhood, that you have blessed us with a Son, and He is the Savior of the world. Now, Lord, I pray that you would Bless our time together as we take a look at this son of Eve in the pages of the Old Testament. Help us to see the gospel with greater clarity and let us celebrate and rejoice and worship him. And in worshiping him, give all honor and glory to you, our Father. Speak through me. Unstop our ears. Open the eyes of our heart that we may be instructed in the way and be glad. I pray for our mothers. Bless them. Empower them for service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Transitioning now to our sermon. We are in a sermon series called Jesus in the Old Testament. And our goal is not just to go back and pick a few passages out of the Old Testament and and then work through the the content of those passages and see Jesus in the Old Testament. We want to discover more than that. We want to look at particular ways that we can look for Jesus in the Old Testament. So the hope is, after the couple of months that we spend on this, you'll have eight or nine tools that you can then open the Old Testament and say, okay, how might I go about understanding the gospel from the pages of the Old Testament. Last week we looked at type scenes. Type scenes is just uh, an intentionally repeating plot sequence. We, We gave the example of the romantic comedy. Every romantic comedy is exactly the same. It's a type scene. I know it's a bit of an exaggeration, not exactly the same, that's my little bent there. Uh, but, but you see there's similarities, certain things that you expect in a story. If it was a fairy tale, fairy tales are type scenes. Uh, it starts at a place far, far away and then it, it ends when they lived happily ever after. And there are certain elements in between that we expect to see. So when you're reading your Old Testament, if you start in Genesis and you're going to work your way through, what you you want to do is you want to look at just the patterns of of the plot. Look for repeating patterns in the narrative itself. Say, I think I've read this story before. And, And if you could say, hey, there's two or maybe three or maybe four stories that really seem similar, what you then want to do is say, What's the point? Why is this pattern being repeated? What does it teach me about Jesus? Last week we looked at the woman at the well and we saw that the same story happened with Isaac and with Jacob and with Moses and a little bit with Saul and then ultimately in John 4 with Jesus. Here's another type scene that I'll just give you that you can go and look at. Abraham sold his wife Sarah into two harems. So already in the life of Abraham you have a type scene. He did it once, then he did it again. Now, if that wasn't enough, his son Isaac sells Rebekah into a harem. What's going on there? I'm not going to give you the answer, but there's a type scene. You go and figure it out. How does that help you to understand the gospel? Or, or the wilderness type scene. You see, they grumble about food. They grumble about water. God provides them with food and water. Then they grumble about food. They grumble about water. God provides them food and water. It gets repeated over and over. Why? It's a type scene. In the book of Judges, this is a really easy type scene to see, right? The people come into the land. Then they sin. Then they're oppressed by a foreign army. Then they cry out to God. Then God raises up a judge. Then God delivers them militarily. Then they live at peace again. And they sin, and they go around and around and around that type scene. What's the point? So I could give you other examples, but I think that's sufficient for now. These type scenes are all over the Old Testament. Look for them. Ask yourself the question, how does this teach me, or what does it teach me about Jesus and the gospel? Today we're going to look at a concept that's very similar to type scenes. In fact, it uses the same word. Today we're going to look at typology. 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 What is a typology? A typology is a matter of Christian doctrine that is prefigured by something in the Old Testament. So it could be a, a person, it could be a, a thing, a utensil in the temple, it could be a place. Uh, it's very similar to the type scene concept that we did yesterday, except it's not a repeating plot sequence. It's a, it's an article. It's a, it's a thing. It's a something. And then it gets repeated over and over. So the writer of Hebrews refers to typology and he calls them, does anyone know? The something of the Old Testament. the Yeah, the shadows. He says the Old Testament has the shadows, but the, the gospel has the real thing. So, so the reality of the gospel, the reality of Jesus casts a shadow over the Old Testament. And that shadow is the Old Testament. So in the book of Hebrews, the tabernacle is a shadow, a picture of the heavenly tabernacle. And So you want to understand the tabernacle, and what you're doing is you're trying to understand something about Jesus and about heaven. Now what would be a modern day example? So last week we talked about the romantic comedy or the fairy tale or the sports drama. What would be a, a, a modern day example that would help us to grasp what a, ty- a typology is? blueprints a blueprint is a type so this is a typology so within a typology you have a type and an anti-type this is all very technical language but it's not that complicated the type is the shadow or the blueprint that prefigures something that's more real the anti-type then is that which which relates to the type which is the real thing. So in the case of blueprints, the type is the blueprint. The anti-type is the building. Do you see how there's a relationship between the two? Uh, A good builder will roll out the blueprints and say, okay, this is what we're trying to build. And then they build it. Once you build it, you have the real thing and you only need the blueprints insofar as it helps you to understand the real thing. But you don't even need the blueprints. I don't need the blueprints to know that we're standing in a building, that this is a big room. I can walk down the hall. I can go into all of the rooms. But if there's a plumbing problem, which we had this week, somebody might need to get out the blueprints to figure out where the pipes are. And and it's the same thing that we're doing in theology, right? We can understand the gospel without the Old Testament. You can walk into uh, the gospel and understand that Jesus died for our sins. But if you want to know a nuance or understand a greater nuance, typology is really important. It's akin to trying to look for a hidden pipe. And once you know where the pipe is, you understand the building a little bit more. When you understand these little types of Jesus and the gospel in the Old Testament, all of a sudden you understand the gospel a little bit more. So as I said typologies are similar to type scenes but they do not involve a plot. They can be persons, items, places, things, etc. So what are some examples? We're going to do two and we're going to we're going to go through them in greater length, but let me just give you a list of examples cuz I'm not going to revisit this next week. The ark that Noah built is a type of Christ. Judgment came Everyone who was in the ark passed through the judgment and came out into a new world. Everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and loves him and gives him their sin, we are in Christ in the same way as Noah and his family were in the ark. When the final judgment comes, we are in Christ, we pass through the judgment, and we come out into the new heavens and the new earth. The ark is a type of Christ. When you read the, the story of Noah and the ark and the flood, all of a sudden you get great. Christian theology, if you read it as a typology. Circumcision, it's repeated over and over and over in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament. What's the point? The circumcision of the flesh is not the point. That's a type. The real thing is the circumcision of the heart. So just as you cut off some flesh and throw it away, so God, by the Holy Spirit, cuts the sin out of your heart and nails it to the cross. You see how the very graphic type helps you to understand something profound about the gospel. Isaac, the son of Abraham, is a type. Abraham and Sarah needed to wait a long time for the coming of the promised son. Israel had to wait a long time for the coming of the promised son. And then once he arrived, God said, kill him. The near sacrifice of Isaac is a prefiguration of the crucifixion of Jesus. The tabernacle and everything within it is a type. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's the the Greek, not, not indwelt among us, but tabernacled among us. The tabernacle is where God and humanity meet. God and humanity meet most fully in the person of Christ. And like a tent that can move around, Jesus was a portable temple. And then every item in the tabernacle has its typological significance. All of the sacrifices... The beginning of Leviticus are all pointing forward typologically to the sacrifice of Jesus. The high priesthood of Aaron is looking forward to it. it's a type, a picture of Jesus who is a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. All of the feasts are pointing forward to important times in salvation history when Jesus would come and redeem people for God. And I could go on and on and on. There's so many types in the Old Testament. you see how exciting this is? If you have an idea of, of typology, then you will have a deeper understanding of Christian doctrine and theology. And if you have a deeper understanding of Christian doctrine and theology, you will understand the gospel more fully. And if you understand the gospel more fully, you will worship God more reverently and with greater joy and, and more depths of passion. And as you worship God more fully as that, then you will live for him. Not in a legalistic sense, but out of the depth of your devotion to him for all that he has done for us. This is all so important. Now the problem, and there is a big problem with typology. is why oftentimes preachers are, are scared to preach on typology. Because there's been a big backlash of um, irresponsible typological preaching. And we've fallen into allegory. For example, uh, David picked up five stones when he went to fight David and Goliath. What's the typological significance? Is it because there's five books in the Torah? It was each stone for one of the books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Maybe there's five books in the Psalter. Maybe it was for book one, two, three, four, and five of the Psalms. Or maybe it was for the four Gospels in Acts. Or maybe he thought he was going to miss the first four times. Right? Or maybe he was worried that Goliath had brothers. Like, you know, we don't, it doesn't matter. We don't have any typological significance to the fact that David picked up five smooth stones. And so we have to be careful. How can we know that something is a type? that we're not reading in? What safeties or controls can we put into place to make sure that we're not being irresponsible with our biblical interpretation? Well, there are three parts to every typology that you must see if it's going to be a biblical type. Typologies must have these three components. Number one, there must be some correspondence or sameness. So, There has to be a relationship. You have to be able to say, ah, there's something about the Passover lamb that just is self-evidently corresponding to the sacrifice of Jesus at Passover. So you have to find out what is that correspondence. What is the same between the type and the anti-type? Use blueprints as an example. Uh, Well, we'll get into this. Uh, Yeah, I guess we're in... So there's correspondence or sameness. I'll list these, then we'll go through them in a little more detail. Then there's escalation. So the, the anti-type has to be greater than the type. Then there's theological vision, that there, there's a particular function that both the type and the antitype are doing, and it's the same. So let's look at these in a little more detail. Correspondence. There has to be some sameness, some common elements between the type and the antitype. So if we use blueprints as an example. If you have a good builder, if you roll open the blueprints and you walk around the building, you'll say, okay, we're in this room. If we go down this hall and we take a left, there should be stairs that go upstairs. So you say that by looking at the blueprints, and then you walk. And it should be the same. There should be a correspondence between the blueprints and the building. Same with biblical theology. You need to see that correspondence between the type and the antitype. Escalation. These corresponding elements must be greater in the antitype than in the type. It sounds very technical, but it's not. Basically, think about it this way the type is the blueprints, they're in 2D, they're two dimensional. The antitype is the building. Building is three dimensional. There's escalation. There's something greater. You you can sit in a room in a building. You can't sit in a room in the blueprints, unless they're really big blueprints. But even then, it's two dimensional. Now, theological vision both the type and the anti type must represent a similar vision of God's redemptive. Activity. So that's with biblical typology. There, there must be something that God is trying to accomplish and, and he's going to communicate it and accomplish it through the type and the anti-type in the same way. So the function of the two are the same. So with the blueprints, there's no theological function to blueprints unless they're the second half of Exodus. you got the blueprints in word form and the second half of Exodus, and you get the actual tabernacle. But just for the blueprints of this building, there's no theological function. However, both the blueprints, it's the type, and the building, the antitype, fulfill the vision of the architect. Do you see how that works? So an architect sits down, thinks, what kind of building do I want to build? Draws it out in blueprints. There's the vision. And then he gives those blueprints to someone to build the building that he has drawn. And the building, if it's done properly, should also fulfill the vision of the architect. So it is with God. God is the architect of salvation history. He writes through the prophets his vision of the gospel in the Old Testament. And that vision is more fully realized through the gospel, through Jesus Christ. Those are the three things that we need in biblical typology. Correspondence, some sameness, escalation, the real thing, the gospel has to be greater than the type. And the same vision or function that God is accomplishing something through the type and the antitype that is the same. Now, let's give two examples of this, and this will help you to fill it out. So we're going to look at two typologies. We're going to look at snakes, and we're going to look at ladders. Two types that God uses in the Old Testament and fulfills in the New Testament. As in the board game, snakes take you down and ladders take you up. So let's start with snakes. Open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. We're going to read, what we're reading here to begin with is the type. What we're going to read is similar to what a blueprint is to a building. This really helps because this is a very strange episode in the Bible. And and if you're just cruising through the book of Numbers, I don't know if that's possible to do, but let's say you are. uh, You're cruising through the book of Numbers, and you get to Numbers 21, and you're wondering, "What, what in the world is going on in Numbers 21? But it makes a whole lot more sense if you know that God is laying down a foundation, a vision for what He's going to accomplish through Jesus Christ. That's what He's doing. So they've been walking around in the desert. They're complaining about food and water again. Uh, They've not had the faith to go into the promised land. So God says, you're going to be here for 40 years. Just get used to it. So they just continue to complain and complain. Aaron has just died. And now we get this episode. Numbers 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea. Now, that's discouraging to start with. Here we are like decades in, and they're back at the Red Sea, just going in circles. It, and you've got to admit, that would be really frustrating. We were here like 27 years ago. We're still here. Anyway, uh, to go around uh, the land of Edom. So they weren't going to pass through Edom. So they're just taking their time. They're back at the Red Sea. And the people became impatient on the way. Understandably. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. This is what they said. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food. There's no water. In fact, we loathe this worthless food. Now, they're already contradicting themselves. There's no food or water, but there's food here, and we hate it. But they're at the Red Sea, and they're like, remember when we crossed that? Like we're, we're like a day's journey from Egypt. Let's just go back. This manna is getting old. I'm tired of it. Now, this, But this is, this is sinful, isn't it? God's providing for them. God delivered them from slavery. When they saw the Red Sea, what, what they should have done is worship God. They just said, wow, God, I remember when we were here and we had been slaves and you brought us through and you defeated the Egyptian army. But they didn't. They just complained about God's deliverance. So what does God do? Verse 6, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that the many people of Israel died. The people came to Moses and they said, we've sinned. For we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now This is such a strange solution to their problem because if you remember when when Aaron built a, a golden calf it was a disaster for the people and now God is saying which seems like he's in contradiction to his first commandment right or first and second you have no other God before me don't make any graven images of any other God now he says actually make a bronze serpent put it up on a pole now how is, why is it that God is not breaking the commandments in instructing Moses to do this thing. Well, that's where typology is going to help us. You see, I'll give you the answer, and then we're going to work through it. What, What God is instructing Moses to do is to give them a blueprint of Jesus. This is how the gospel is going to work. Let's go through these things. What's the corresponding elements between the snake, the bronze snake, and the snakes in the camp, and the gospel? Well, correspondence. Snakes were killing the Israelites because of their sin. So God commanded Moses to put a bronze snake on a stake. The very thing that was killing them, they were supposed to look at and be healed. What about, what about the gospel? What's killing us? Most people won't die from poisonous snake bites. But what will we all die of? What kills us? Sin. Sin is the great killer of humanity. And it's interesting, you go back to the garden, right? Who initiated this sin that kills? The serpent. So there's a connection there. The thing that is killing all humanity is sin. So God puts the very thing that is killing us up on the cross. Do you see the correspondence? This bronze snake that goes up on the cross, when the people look at it, they're supposed to be reminded of the very thing that's killing them. When we look to the cross, we are supposed to be reminded of the very thing that is killing us. Correspondence. What's the escalation? Well, in in this episode, in Numbers 21, the Israelites were dying physically from snake venom. When they looked at the bronze serpent on the stake, they were healed physically of the snake venom. That's... Not the gospel, that's much less than the gospel. Physical healing, as great as it is, is so much smaller than what God promises us in the gospel. As we've already established, all humanity is dying eternally, not from snake venom, but from sin. When we look at the cross of Christ, if we can see our sin hanging in the body of Jesus, then we are healed Eternally. So you see the escalation from physical death because of snake venom, eternal death because of sin, physical healing versus eternal healing. Escalation. Now we come to the third part theological vision. God shares one theological vision in both Numbers 21 and the gospel. God hates sin. God delivered the people out of their slavery in Egypt. And they wanted to go back to slavery in Egypt because they liked the pleasures of Egypt better than the food of freedom in the wilderness with God. And how often can we be like that? We've been slaved Uh, enslaved to sin when we were born God saves us, he delivers us from our slavery to sin and now we walk in the wilderness until the end of this life and it's not always that enjoyable it can be hard to be a Christian and have we not all had that moment where we said oh, the fleeting pleasure of sin is so delicious I want that again Because right now, I'm a Christian. I'm trying to follow Christ. And what good is it getting me? I hate this loathsome food. Now, there's typology on type of typology here. Jesus later says that the manna that came down from heaven is none other than the bread of life, which is him himself. They were not satisfied with the manna. We are not satisfied with Jesus Christ. We want Jesus Christ and a flat screen TV. We want Jesus Christ and a house. We want Jesus Christ and a job. We want Jesus Christ and no suffering. We want Jesus Christ and all of the luxuries that all of our unsaved neighbors have. We're not satisfied with Jesus Christ. And we are wandering in the wilderness of this life, not satisfied with the true manna that came down from heaven to a place called House of Bread, Bethlehem, and was laid in a feeding trough, a manger. That's not enough for us. We want more. And so we are not unlike these Israelites. And so God has a common theological vision. He is tired of our complaining and our grumbling, just as he was tired of their complaining and their grumbling. Here he delivers them from slavery, he gives them everything that they need, and he himself dwells in their midst in the tabernacle. We're told that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Is he not enough for us? So God punishes sin with death, which is pretty sobering. And here's the hard reality: if we hate this loathsome food, that is Jesus Christ, are we saved? careful lest a fiery serpent comes in and bites you and you die not physically but eternally it's frightening right that's frightening if we cannot be if we are not satisfied with Christ how can we say we've been born of Christ Unfortunately, God heals the people. They they recognize their sin, and they cry out, and they say, oh, Moses, intercede for us, and he does, and he prays to God. And God says, listen, there is a solution here the very thing that is killing you, look to it and be healed. So this morning, if you hate this loathsome food and you've been convicted that that you've not been satisfied with Christ, look to Christ on the cross. And don't see Christ only on the cross, but see your sin. Not generally, but specifically. When you look to the cross, what do you see? I see my sin today's sin, and yesterday's sin, and this week's sin, and I'm healed. And so are you. If you see your sin, the thing that is killing you, be healed today, not physically, but eternally. That's such a profound way to communicate the gospel. You know, the most popular verse in the Bible is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not die, but have eternal life. Do you know the two verses before the most popular verse, the most famous verse in the Bible? What's the context? That you may not die, but be healed unto eternal life. Verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The the one place that Jesus goes in the the most uh, famous place where Jesus summarizes the gospel is the passage that we just looked at. Typology. Jesus preached good typology to Nicodemus on that starry night. That's snakes. This is the amazing thing. We love talking about Jesus being the Lamb of God, and He is. It's a little bit less comfortable to call Him the Snake of God. Now, understand by that I don't mean that He became a snake, I don't think He became a lamb, but it's the typology that matters. Typology, he doesn't become sinful in any way, shape, or form. But, and this is where the typology does its heavy lifting, he takes into himself. He carries in himself the sin of the world. Snakes take you down. No one has descended lower than Jesus Christ. No one has carried the load of sin that he has carried for us. And if you back up to John 3.13, that's the point. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven all the way to the depths, the lowest depths of human experience. That is the son of man. So he's come lower than anyone will ever go so that we could be healed of our sin. Now we also learn though that Jesus has ascended higher than anyone could ever ascend. That his name is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But in his ascension, we ascend with him. And that's the glory. We descend with him on the cross by giving him our sin. We ascend with him to the highest heavens. Ladders. Go back to Genesis 28, verses 10 to 17. Jacob is running for his life because he has stolen the birthright and the blessing from his brother. Genesis 28, and he stops for the night. Genesis 28, verse 10. We're going to look here for a typology of ladders. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it and he was afraid and he said how awesome is this place this is none other than the house of God and this is the gate to heaven flip over to John 1 What we just read was the type that's akin to the blueprints. God is drawing a blueprint of the gospel there. In John 1, Jesus is calling people to himself. Philip found a friend of his named Nathaniel and said, so You've got to come and meet this guy. You've got you to get to know Jesus. He, I think he's the, the Christ, I think he's the Messiah. Now, Nathanael doubted. He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, well, come and see. Verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. In other, this is kind of hard to understand, but what Jesus is basically saying is, he's complimenting, he's... he's, um, He's saying, look, here's Nathaniel, here's an Israelite, a, a poster boy for all Israelites. If you want to know what it means to be an Israelite, this is a really good specimen. Follow his example. This is a compliment. Verse 48. Nathaniel said to him, How how do you know me? And Jesus said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So it didn't take much to convince him, right? It's, you're a great Israelite and I saw you. I have a power to, to see you and, and Nathaniel's convinced. And Jesus doesn't want him to be so easily convinced. Verse 50, and Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. Now remember what Jesus said about Nathanael. He is like a a great example of what it means to be an Israelite. If you're a great example of an Israelite, you know the Old Testament. You know Genesis 29. And so Jesus begins to speak Nathanael's language. Verse 51, and he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, just imagine if you're Nathaniel. Who was it that saw heaven open and saw a ladder and angels ascending and descending? It was Jacob. And Jacob is not a small person in Israelite history, right? He is Israel. And Jesus says to Nathaniel, You are going to be great like Jacob. But then he interprets what's going on in Genesis 29 and he says, You will see angels ascending and descending just as Jacob did. You'll see heaven open, just as Jacob did. But you're going to see it in greater clarity than even Jacob because you will see all of this. You will see heaven open and angels ascending and descending on a vision of a ladder? No, on the Son of Man, on Jesus himself. Now, John never tells us when this is fulfilled. We don't know. At at some point in Nathanael's life, he must have come to see who Jesus was and saw the theological implication of who Jesus was and saw, wow, Jesus is Jacob's ladder. Now let's just say, and I don't know this, but let's just, for visual sake, let's just say that Nathanael happened to see Jesus on the cross. And he puts it all together. Maybe he even saw heaven open and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man when, when Jesus, by the act of crucifixion, is literally joining heaven and earth. I don't, we don't know that, okay? I'm not saying that. But the point is made, Jesus says he is Jacob's letter. So let's go through these three points. Correspondence, in this, point, in this case it's really easy. In Genesis 29, angels ascend and descend on Jacob's ladder. And Jesus uses the exact same words in John 1. Angels ascend and descend on Jesus Christ. There's an easy correspondence to see there. God has put these two things together. What's the escalation? In Genesis 29, well, Jacob sees heaven open and he sees a ladder, but it's a vision. Nathaniel is going to see Jesus Christ in the flesh. Son of God, come and he's going to make the connection. That's an escalation. One is the vision of Christ, one is Christ himself. What's the theological vision? And, and this is this is so profound uh, and, and it's exclusive, but th- let's go through it. Heaven and earth, are separated by a great chasm. Nobody can go from here to there. I I cannot will myself into heaven. Neither can any person who has ever lived which is what makes the vision given to Jacob so amazing. He lays down, he's fearing for his life, and I bet you he wished he could just climb that ladder, get up into heaven, and he would be safe. But what God is saying to him is, there is a way for you to get into heaven. Uh, There is this gulf, this chasm between heaven and earth, and no one can cross that chasm. God must be the one that provides a means to cross from here to there. God must give us a ladder if we are to ascend there to heaven. And God does provide a ladder. In Jacob's vision, it's a vision of a ladder, and angels go up and down on that ladder. But this ladder, as we've said, is Christ, which means that Jesus Christ is the only way into heaven. The only way into heaven. He is the ladder. He is the, the way, the means, the bridge, the ladder that God gives so that men and women on earth can ascend into heaven. There's no other way. Jesus himself said it in John fourteen six. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's it. There's Not all the religions are the same. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who is fully man, who died for your sins, if you can't see your sins hanging there the way the serpent was raised up, you're not going to climb Jacob's ladder into heaven. You see, two types working together to profoundly give us the gospel. So then, typologically, Jesus is the snake of Christ. Uh, Numbers 21, and the latter of Genesis 29. He descended, carrying our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might ascend in him to the Father in heaven, the gospel. If you ever want to preach the gospel, Genesis 29 and Numbers 21, in reverse order. So my question for you is this. Have you seen your sin raised up on the cross? Have you seen that the only ladder into heaven is Jesus Christ? If you have, rejoice, because not everyone has seen these things. Not everyone has been healed. Not everyone will climb that ladder to be with the Father. If you have seen these things, go out into the world and share. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will be healed and will have eternal life. They will climb, they will ascend with the angels on Jacob's ladder, which is Christ, into heaven. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you so much That you have shown us this way that we can read the Old Testament and understand the gospel. I pray for us as we read through the Old Testament uh, together or alone or in our families. That you would give us eyes to see different typologies that would inform our understanding of what you've accomplished in Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name.